Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Welcome. Uh, this evening I'm sat with Roger Madeline, leader of British Land's Regeneration of Canada Water, former chief executive of Argent and credited as the chief visionary for the hugely coveted King's Cross development. In this episode, I'm really looking forward to listening to Roger share what got him to this point in his career. So Roger, you've got a very public profile, but what I think I would really like to learn is where did it all begin? Would you mind sharing with us a little bit about sort of what, was it, what happened in the earliest days of your career? Um, you can see I'm wearing glasses. I never used to wear them, but um, after A-level maths, physics and geography, which I chose specifically to get into aviation, I got selected for the RAF and um, I failed the eyesight test. And um, not wanting to give up, I went for British Airways and exactly the same happened. And then I went for Bristol Helicopters and exactly the same happened. And university had started and I came back from the Bristol Helicopters Medical. And my dad said, don't know what you want to do next, but um, I've got a place for you at Aston University reading civil engineering. So we jumped in the car. I don't know whether it was the next day or... A few days later and up we drove to Birmingham and I started civil engineering three weeks into a term at Aston and uh, suddenly thought I might have a career or I might be involved in some kind of building construction activity. I better start looking out the window and seeing what it's all about. So as a fifth choice career, you haven't done too badly. Well, I've always been interested in engineering. I've always been reasonably good at physics uh, okay at you know, basic maths you know, a level was was okay i wouldn't like to take it any further and i've always been interested in the outdoors and the built environment i've traveled a lot traveled a lot uh, as a teenager traveled a lot with family and always been very aware that sitting down in urban environments some of them are terrific and make you feel very comfortable and you want to stay there and others you want to carry on the journey. So I just started looking a lot more. And Birmingham, living in the centre of Birmingham, was, was a very interesting case study, I think, of cities uh, developed in the 1800s and then you know, redeveloped in the 60s and some great things and, and bad things. And I became quite ex- you know, excited genuinely about what was around and, and how it was created. Okay. So civil engineering graduate? No, because I changed after uh, <laughs> after about a month, sat in a soil mechanics lecturer lecture trying to um, understand a very heavily accented uh, but brilliant Polish uh, lecturer on soil mechanics and looking around and thinking, I'm probably at the bottom of this class and the... The chap that was in charge of you know, new students, uh, I met him as, as part of the how are you doing? You know, this is you know, week six or whatever it is at university. How's it going? And I said, um, got any other courses? And he said, yeah, we've got loads of courses. We've got you know, production engineering, mechanical engineering, building engineering, uh, quantity surveying. So I said, what's building engineering? And he explained uh, what it was. And it. so I switched. So I did a building degree, which... Um, I must admit, was a damn sight more interesting than I could possibly have imagined. And everything, literally everything I learned, I have used throughout my career at some point. Interesting, interesting. So at the point of the graduation, what happened after that? It was a sandwich course, uh, which I can highly recommend. So six months of university, you had to then find a job, spend six months working, back to university for six months, back out for another nine months actually back for six months and then that was a very fortunate thing because um, I graduated in 1981 and uh, look at your history books, 79, 80, 81 was a pretty grim uh, recession and uh, the firm I had done all the sandwich uh, work for um, obviously thought I was pretty useful and carried on employing me and progressively made redundant uh, people above me um, who were obviously paid more and I ended up, you know, after three years, losing two bosses, never having a boss kind of above me. And I ended up as a senior contracts manager as a building contractor at the age of 24. And the only one who really knew how old I was was the 
car manager who kept having to upgrade my cars as as I got promoted. And that's Carl Stewart? That was Carl Stewart, who became uh, BAM via HBG. And um, when I handed my notice in at the age of 25, uh, the deputy managing director gave some expletives and then said, I don't know, you know, why you're leaving you know, to join a some you know, tin pot developer who'll probably go bust after a year. You'll come creeping back. You know, you should stay because you know you'll be managing director of the business. And I said, hang on a minute, Richard. You know, you're in your mid thirties and you're deputy managing director, so you're going to be managing director at one you know, at one point soon. So it would be quite a long wait, wouldn't it? And he looked at me and he said, yeah, you're right. So he said, if it doesn't go bust and you do. Lots of building, you know, you know, we'd be delighted to build for you. And Carl Stewart, you know, bam, did, I think, about a billion pounds worth of construction for Argent. And uh, and Richard Gregory retired at the age of 65 when I was well into my 40s. So um, I'm pleased I moved. So what was the name of this tin pot developer you joined? Well, it wasn't a tin pot developer, but we did go bust uh, 18 months after I joined. They were called Sherfield Investments. And it was a very exciting ride and, and learning process. We um, we owned 20 dump trucks. We employed most of the you know, workers on site directly, uh, built half a million square feet of speculative uh, workspace buildings or offices, or uh, they were called high-tech buildings at the time in and around Basingstoke. Uh, they all let before practical completion to companies like um, Digital, who became Fujitsu, I think, and IBM, who obviously still IBM and tin pot companies like Microsoft, but you know, no one really knew what they did. And um, we went bust um, because we were looking at far too many new projects and spending far too much money on uh, designers. Uh, and we just didn't have enough income coming in. And that was a very, very good lesson. I was 27 and I was pretty confident that you know, I'd be able to walk out and get another job anyway. But Michael and Peter Freeman, who had founded Argent, had been into Sherfield in summer of 86, and I had done a presentation to them about some of the jobs we were working on and some of the jobs we were looking at, because they were pretty keen to expand, having not actually built anything themselves, um, and wanting to to amalgamate or buy someone who um, who could kind of launch them into into building and more developments. So I walked into Argent in uh, January 1987, a bit suspicious of Michael and Peter, but um, was a consultant to them for a year, uh, but suddenly realised they were a very different pair of people to the to the previous managing director that, that I worked for, who I was in partnership with, actually. So um, I'd spent five weeks in Chile flying a hang glider as the company went bust, so I came back to three months of no salary, but um, uh, you, I didn't particularly mind you know I think you've a combination of arrogance and confidence and you know someone will employ me and if they don't I can survive for as long as it takes you know to to do something okay we could pause there then so age age 27 mm -hmm. you've gone from contractor to developer what were you what were you looking for at that stage in your career uh I was looking to do a good job when I was a you know, contractor you know, I'd arrive on time, you know, often early, you know, leave late, um, try and you know, move the process from A to B, whatever that process was, and encourage people around me to help, try and find the good people and, and make them feel comfortable that they could get on and do what they were good at. You know, I became very, very aware very, very quickly that everything you try and do, I'm sure, in, in all jobs is a, is a team effort. And just be very honest if you're in a position where you are managing people to to let them know what you're trying to achieve and how they can help and make sure you create a team where they can get on and do what they're very good at uh, without being interfered with or or not trusted. And at that point, had you had a had you had a plan for your career? No. So just a series of opportunities? Yes. I as a builder, I was very interested in what happened before the client came to the building contractor and said, would you, would you like to tender to build this or would you like to build it? And I was involved in some of the very early Tesco out-of-town superstores 
and uh, they were very very keen for obvious reasons to get them built very quickly uh, but I was very aware in conversations with some of the Tesco people and some of the architects that the planning process you know, often had taken a year or two or three years and I thought I wonder if that was managed as well as we have to manage the 44 weeks you know to deliver this massive out of town superstore you know when you've got a foot of snow outside and you still have to deliver the thing on time and the more I asked people the more I became intrigued and pretty convinced that it probably wasn't managed on a day-to-day basis like we had to manage construction and thousands of you know different different people coming together and components coming together and um I'd had a conversation with a external project manager about about this and he said no you're absolutely right the the quality of management before you know is pretty appalling why don't you come and work for me and exactly at that time I met an old colleague who I worked with during one of my sandwich courses kind of by chance and we had this conversation he said oh I've just joined this developer and you know why don't you come and and work for us the MD will um will you know give you an interview so you know a lot of happenstance but okay. um I was I was definitely looking you know what happened before and around construction so I guess you know if, if I wasn't looking I wouldn't have Curious having those com- conversations yes and the uh, at this time the Freemans mm-hmm. solicitors by profession well, um, yes, uh, they both were qualified solicitors um, in their father's firm, DJ Freeman. Uh, I understand uh, Peter had qualified and had worked for a day as a qualified solicitor. Um, Michael, his uh, older brother, had qualified and and had done some work in uh, finance as well. And they had wanted to start a TV production business, which they set up in 1981, and they made... A few programs they made arms and the man, uh, and my now wife, um, who was at an advertising agency, was very keen to move into TV production. So she answered an advert to join them. You know, it's exciting TV production business, um, and she joined them in '82 as uh, their first employee. And she didn't want to be in an office on her own, so they said, "You can employ someone else." And she said, "Well, where's the business plan to?" You know, employ someone else and they thought well, this is quite interesting oh, we better do a business plan and um, they had a uh, an apartment or a house actually up in um, Islington uh, which they wanted to you know, convert and and sell on so there was kind of property thing on the side and the TV production business was um, was not expanding and as successful as they hoped so they kind of wound that down and they ended up you know, just with property Argent Estates and started to learn as fast as they could about property and how they could get more of it and options and using their legal skills and just curiosity to get into property, which is why they were out looking to expand and how I met them when I was at Sherfield Investments. And so what do they say to you, this 27-year-old, to to entice you to come and join them? Well, as I say, I was a consultant for a year because I thought here are two brothers with three ladies in the office as I say, one of them um, is now my wife. They said, do you know how to build stuff? And I said, yes, what do you want me to, to build? And they said, well, we've got this scheme up in Luton, which has got a you know, half of its pre-let, and we've got the money to, to build it, uh, but we don't really know what to do next. So I went up and met the architects and the contractors and said, well, if you want to press ahead with it, you know, I could get it on site for this price, you know, probably in six weeks, um, is it going to make any money? And they said, well, we think it might make a 100,000, it might lose a 100,000, or it might break even. And I like, you know, suddenly I thought, well, these are pretty realistic guys. I said, do you think it will lose more than a 100,000? They said, no, we don't think it will lose more than a 100,000. You know, we went through the figures and I just thought, you know, having that ability to, to look at the downside was exactly what the firm you know, I had come from that had gone bust, didn't do. And, you know, Michael and Peter are just extraordinarily bright, analytical people, you know, who, who certainly taught me in business, you know, to always think of the upside, but also remember that there's a downside. Um, and it, after a few months of, of doing stuff, not exclusively with Michael and Peter, I was doing 
one other thing with the old MD of this company that went bust. I just thought, you know, they are completely different. Yeah, they're in a completely different league. So I joined them full time. What year was this? 87, end of 87. Uh, and a chap called Robert Lawrence came in and we were all put on the board. You know, it's just four guys in 88, just before, you know, the downturn of 89. So um, the four directors of, of Argent you know, navigated our way through 89, 90 recession, you know, every 10 years. You know. But um, uh, that was an experience as well when cash flow was the only thing on the on the board meeting agenda. We had, I think, you know, well over 11 projects on the go coming out of the ground, you know, coming up for finishing. We hadn't expanded that fast. You know, we were just all working very, very hard, which was uh, which was good. We hadn't expanded that fast. We still had to lay off uh, a, a couple of staff, which was you know always grim. It's always grim doing that, but um, cash flow was um, you know king. And so when did when did the argent that we recognise today? When did that start to take shape? When did the when did you and the Freeman start looking at, at larger projects? Certainly in the late eighties. We were intrigued, uh, amazed, and envious, but you know, knew we were small fry and had had lots to learn. Kings Kings Cross was in the headlines in in the late eighties and the early nineties with the London Regeneration Consortium, and I I went up and had a look a look round it at the time and just thought, wow, you know, how amazing you know something like this is, and how complicated it is, and how could we ever get our our minds around something this this big and complicated and I remember a conversation with Peter Freeman actually in the late 80s um, wouldn't it be amazing if we could do a, a piece of city you know like King's Cross and wouldn't it be amazing if we could do a you know a proper new town you know 50,000 or 20,000 know? and those two ambitions certainly in Peter's mind and my mind you know have have, have always been there and obviously King's Cross we were lucky enough to to be selected when it came back again, when it all fell apart the first time. And um, Peter's trying to press ahead with a new town down in um, Sussex. And I'm still, I, I was still looking. And Chris Greig from British Land, when he knew I was stepping back from Argent, retiring from Argent, he just said, I've got a new town for you. And I said, yeah, where's that? thought he might say Cambridge or something. And he said, Canada Water, do you want to come and run it? And I said, probably not. But, you know, how much land have you got? 46 acres. Buy me, you know. It free old almost. Hmm. You get vacant possession. Yeah, no problem. Well, he was fibbing a bit, um, but his answers were interesting enough for me to take my wife, you know, who obviously knew a lot about property, down to have a look at Canada Water, which we did in the summer of 2015, you know, very quietly. I was still at Argent three days a week at that point, doing a few other things, but um, retiring at the end of 2015 and. Yeah, there I was walking around what is now 53 acres you know, in the sunshine with my wife and walking along the dock edge and in the park and the woods and just looking at each other going, this is just amazing. I mean, where's this come from? And my wife said, but you're going to do it, aren't you? So it'd be handy if you could have a couple of months between Argent and starting at British Land and the rest history. I didn't have a couple of months. I had a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Too excited to get started? It's, you know... If I if I had waited a month or two months, stuff still has to happen, you know, and it would have been harder possibly to stop stuff that you know might be trundling along or change direction, you know. Where so um, I joined in in early 2015, February the first was 2016 was the um, was the official start date, and I was lucky I stayed involved at Kings Cross on the Aga Khan stuff as a consultant for um, for. Two and a half years after that, and no, I still still go up. Still got great friends up there. I see a lot of colleagues on a regular basis. You know, I meet people. Yeah, of course, you'd meet people at Kings Cross. So it's um, it's a joy to kind of still feel uh, welcomed and a little bit involved, but have something completely, you know, as amazing, if not more amazing. Accelerating careers in real estate with Nick Carman. So, Roger, what I'm fascinated now to, to pick into is Argent's beginning with King's Cross. Now, in my research, I was I was told there was a there was a previous developer who'd tried, spent fifty five million pounds on their planning, due diligence, preparation, 
and failed. And then Argent came along and thought, we can uncrack this, and then went on to spend 35 million on their planning application and succeeded. But that takes a huge amount of belief and self, self-belief and confidence, doesn't it? What was it that gave you that confidence? Well, we had spent uh, a good 10 years from the early 90s working on projects like Brindley Place, Thames Valley Park, projects in the city. So we had we had moved from being quite a good but a pretty small developer doing one-off projects in Slough or Enfield or Radlett or or you know, Covent Garden. Yeah, we, you know, we had been in the city. We were learning all the way along and we were looking at other people's developments, not that there was anything anything like King's Cross. But what was very clear to me was however large a project is, however complicated it is, you go through a very similar process of just stopping and thinking. What is it you want to do? What are the opportunities of that particular location? You know, what are the constraints? You know, I think having been a builder uh, and having been given plans sometimes that didn't correspond with the land that you, know, you owned or having been given engineering details that you know, didn't work because you know, they hadn't checked things. I think as a developer, you you need to go through the same process of due diligence and thinking. And the developer before had failed, not because it was a rubbish scheme necessarily. I think, you know, you can look back at it and go, oh, yeah, thank goodness that didn't happen. Or, you know, that was a, I think if it had happened, you know, we might look at it now and say, well, that's an interesting part of, of, of London. You know, the same developers were involved that delivered Broadgate. Broadgate has you know, has repurposed itself. Is still repurposing itself. You know, King's Cross. I think if it had been delivered with that scheme from uh, the London Regeneration Consortium, probably would be re- repurposing itself now. Uh, but I don't. I don't necessarily think it would have been you know, a terrible development at all. It it failed because the whole high speed rail was scrapped and Rosehall went bust and the politics around Camden and uses and you know, what the purpose of, of London was, you know, all was thrown up in the air again. Uh, they didn't not get planning. They got a, a minded to grant whether they, you know, they would have got planning. Um, who knows? But then the whole thing was just torn up. You know, um, they had 120 acres and the high-speed rail was coming under central London you know, with this massive underground concourse under under King's Cross. You, know, you look back on it now and you just go, it was just so ambitious and so mad and it was it was destined to fail. I I think if the economy had carried on booming, it probably would have probably would have happened. So we came along uh with a lot of experience gained from you know, 13, 14 years of, of developing stuff, you know, making lots of mistakes, not massive ones, but trying to learn from every one of them and this very simple philosophy that don't make the same mistake twice. You know, you're going to make a new mistake on the new project you know, and learn from, from that as well. And the teams we'd created uh, around us, particularly Brindley Place and Thames Valley Park, you know, we all trusted each other. You know, we all had that, that philosophy of, of um, you know, let's think things through properly. And when I started to, to look around King's Cross in the, in the late 90s, knowing that it was going to come up for development selection. Um, and I said to my colleagues, you know, we're going to bid and we're going to be selected for the developer of King's Cross. They said, you know, when you win it, you know, let us know because there isn't going to be a chance. It would be ojude and they go for the highest price. Uh, and I said, well, that's not what they are saying. And they said, yeah, you don't believe that. I said, well, they are genuinely saying you know, they are looking for a development partner. And I have spoken to Katie Kopeck at Jones Lang the and she says, no, we're genuinely looking for a development partner. And I spent probably six, nine months just trying to get to know who was behind the decision-making process, LCR. I went on some trips. I kind of followed the people around. You know, They kept looking around, and, and there I was. I was trying not to be too spooky, but I was just genuinely trying to understand what they thought about selecting a developer. And I, I wasn't 100% confident, but I was pretty confident that they were very aware of the previous 55 million and, and failure and a lot of political angst. And 
we took the view that in our bid, we would say, look, this is so complicated. We need to go through a process of really understanding the constraints, not just glibly saying that, but but pointing out that we knew almost as much as we possibly could know at that point because we'd we'd read loads of stuff. I'd read all of the documentation. I'd spoken to you know, dozens and dozens of people, and I'd set out uh, the complications. And I said we are going to go through a process of learning and understanding, not only physically but also the market and you know, the whole politics that goes with it. And, and these are the issues that we think we need to understand. And together, uh, obviously with you as the landowners and together with the politicians, if we can, and the local authorities, we will we will set out a vision. And you know, once we've got that vision, we, we move forward from that. And we got lucky because the landowners you know, absolutely shared that view. One of the landowners had been through the whole process of the 55 million and the other one who was involved, you know, with all of the high-speed railway kind of knew that things were really complicated and, and they'd been in Camden and they'd seen the, the, the politics and someone coming in and saying, look, this is complicated, we can help you uh, and we will do this personally because that is urgent. You know, there's only a limited number of us and, you know, we've got our own money in this but we've also got British Telecom's money behind us. You know, you, you've got a choice. You can choose Lend-Lease, you know, the big global company, you know, they've got... 50 projects, you know, they've done very complicated stuff before. But you know, if something goes wrong in Singapore or Australia, you, you might not you might not see them. You know, this is the one, you know, we're doing stuff in Birmingham and Manchester and, and Reading, but you, know, you will get us. If you don't like us, you know, don't choose us. But if you like us, you know, here's the money and this is the team and this is what we're going to do. And we were lucky, you know, they just went, we believe you, let's go for it. You... Uh, you said something about about how you were pretty confident you were going to get it, but your colleagues sounded pretty confident you weren't. What made you so sure? I think it, it was a combination that I was pretty convinced that I knew more about more of King's Cross than anyone else at that time on the planet. And that's that's not saying I was a genius, it's just that I knew about ground conditions, I knew about boundaries, I knew about railways, I knew about planning, I knew about politics. Why would anyone else, unless they were a developer, you know, would have wanted to to look at that cross spectrum of information? You know, I had I had walked around and met you know, people in the single regeneration budget. You know, I'd been around with Inspector Buttercase. You know, just I'd been to some community groups, so I just had a lot of a lot of background information, and I knew that to deliver something like King's Cross, you needed to know all of this stuff. And if it was you know, land securities who, who were bidding or British land who were bidding, which which they did, who was it in those organisations that was doing what I was doing? And, and no one was doing it. You know, they were saying, here we are, and the consultants have you know, drawn a scheme. And I, I said, how, how can you draw a scheme? You know, we don't know this, 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 and this. You know, you're wasting your time. It, it was good news from Argent because, you know, we weren't paying consultants. You know, AMEC, who were shortlisted, had employed Richard Rogers, you know, and they probably paid him a few million quid. You know, that's, that's fine, but Richard did a scheme, you know, it's a great scheme, but you know, completely undeliverable because you know none of the constraints, none of the politics had been taken into account. I wasn't one hundred percent confident. Of course, you can't be, but I was confident that our way was the right way, and I had got to that point where I had learnt, but and I had a team of colleagues, you know, who were also going to to just start sucking in all the information, all the constraints, you know, and were brilliant in their own right. And, you know, I'd scratched the surface, but whether it was with Peter or with David or with Robert, or Robert wasn't with us then, actually, but we could assemble quite a small but brilliant group of people who would ask all the right questions and, and get all the information. What year was this? 99. 99. So, OK, you've been with them for 12 years? Um, I've been with Argent for, yeah... About 12 years. Okay. So you've been on the board. 88, yeah. You're... We were on the FTSE 250, which FTSE was exciting. 250. For three years. Uh, what year did you become the chief exec? 97. Oh, the reason I paused there is because we delisted. We left the stock market. I always think it was 96. It might have been 96. And then everything was, was up in the air, but... Um, Hermes, um, run by the late, sadly, the late Alistair Roscoby, 
Hermes had been investing in um, three Argent development projects through something called Argent Development Consortium. So Alistair and British Telecom Pension Scheme, that you know, he, was, he was looking after the money of new our development programme, which had a long way to go, and I was running that. And um, he had asked me if I would carry on running it, uh, and I said, well, unless there's a, a company and a future, it's going to be tough to hang on to mm-hmm. the great team I've got. And with Michael Freeman, Michael just said to him, well, if you put 100 million behind Argent and Roger runs you know, a new development business, we'd be non-execs and it could be quite an exciting company. And Alistair went, yeah, well, let's do it. And he put this, put Argent in their double X portfolio, put 100 million on the balance sheet. I became chief exec. Yeah, there was some due diligence from a brilliant trustee of a British Telecom Pension Scheme called John Sadler, who became the chairman, you know, the chairman of the new private Argent, which I was chief chief exec of, and you know because it was a developer, so you know I'd run the development side of Argent. So off we went. So you know, we did other stuff in uh, Birmingham, we did other stuff in Manchester, we did other stuff in Reading, and when King's Cross came along, you know, all of that track record, particularly Brindley Place, and the fact we had British Telecom pension money behind us, and we were investing in it, you know, they kind of looked. This is quite an interesting structure for a for a developer who's going to spend a lot of time and then is going to need to raise a lot of money to deliver it. I think it was, it was a uniquely funded company, which it's uh, just a shame, you know, that that funding was, was taken away, you know, when not long after Alistair sadly passed away. So, Roger, I, I, I asked you earlier about what, what drove you in that earlier days of your careers. Now you're the chief exec of a developer in charge of King's Cross. What's, what's driving you now? Has it changed? I don't think so, no. Um, what drives me is to do things as good as the best I can see around. And if we can improve uh, things in, in other areas that are important to me and I can see are important to other people around me, we have a huge, uh, a huge opportunity as, as developers on, on a city scale to move the agenda. So So whether that's social exclusion and you know, training and you know, trying to give people a chance to work through the construction industry or design design industry or whether it, you know, once you start getting the occupiers in encouraging the occupiers you know, to to join you know, local training programs or at least interview people from local areas or just improve public realm or health and well-being or you know, we were after the Kyoto summit you know, I was determined with with colleagues you know, to try and make Argent you know, the greenest, still use words like green, you know, the, the most sustainable developer around. And we were looking at timber, we were looking at low energy, we were looking at you know, reducing operational costs. And we did some very interesting class-leading stuff at Brindley Place, with, particularly with British Telecom. And all of that stopped, you know, all of the pressure to, to reduce carbon, to reduce energy costs and you know, to, to think about climate change just stopped, didn't it? I, you, know, you might say it didn't stop, but I can tell you it did stop. You know, when the government announced, you know, they were only going to take Briam excellent buildings, and then they didn't, and they oh, just you know, when the government said we're going to have zero carbon homes, and they didn't, and when no one was doing anything about you know how we were producing energy and what we were going to do about transport and you know, what we were going to do about consumption, you just it's back again, and it's back serious this time. Arguably, it should have been serious, you know, in the late eighties, early nineties, and. Listen to re-listen to Mrs. Thatcher's speech to the United Nations in 1989 about climate change and global warming and how we had to reduce CO2 emissions. It's just, you know, we are able to to do things. You know, not just in that, but you know, how we build things. You know, how we collaborate with people and um, the kinds of cities we build. Great, great um, privilege and amazing. Just the diversity of agendas you can touch and influence you know, not in an arrogant way you know we can't change the world but you know we're in a position to talk to lots of people to, to try things whether that's health and well-being or whether it's you know lowering embodied carbon or energy in use or so that's quite altruistic drivers there's not you haven't mentioned about uh something that maybe is about career or money or title yet you've got this big title haven't you? you've got a chief exec there came a time though, that you chose to to share that title, and have a joint chief exec. And I've 
Oh, I've done it at Canada Water. So when you introduced me and said, you know, I'm the head of Canada Water Development, I'm not. I'm the joint head of Canada Water Development as of um, a few months ago. Emma Carriaga is joint head of Canada Water, and it's terrific. So at nine, uh, 2006, David Partridge, you know, who had been with Argent from, I think, 89 or, or 90, you know, he, he came in you know, when the you know, economy wasn't doing very well and you know, a lot of people said, why the goodness are you bringing in a, a blooming architect? And I said, well, he's, a, he's more than an architect. You know, he's, a, he's, he's a strategic thinker. You know, he's a kind of mathematical shapes man and figures man and you know over the over the years of of working with David you know I knew that you know his skills and qualities were going to be equally important than mine and I just said to him you know I want to make you joint chief exec and um it was fine with him you know, he said blimey you know that's that's amazing it was it was more difficult than I thought with the chairman at the time you know he thought it was you know can't have joints you know, joint chiefs in, in businesses. I said, well, you can. Here's 10 examples and they work fine. And, oh, yeah, Michael and Peter Freeman. You know, I know they were brothers, but you know, it, it, it can work. I think you have to um, have different skills and obviously you know, understand you know, where there are overlaps and where there aren't overlaps and, and how you communicate. But I think uh, for big developments, it's uh, it's fine, if not you know, essential. You know, and I needed... David's skills. You know, I'm very aware of um, of the skills and and the interests and my attention span deficit. But not everyone would be willing to give that up, would they? To many people, that's that's the pinnacle. That's we. I asked about sort of. Uh, did you do you plan your career? And to many point people, that's well, that's the end of their plan. Well, they're tossers, then, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, you know, like, yeah. I'm I'm trying to go from A to B, and yeah, you know, I want. You know, to get from A to B in, in the most efficient and rewarding way. And if you need someone alongside you, you need someone alongside you. I'm not interested in you know, what clothes I'm wearing, what hat I'm wearing, or what bloody title I've got. Okay. I think that makes you quite unique, though. I don't know. I, well, I, I hope not. I'm, I'm sure it's not. You know, I know lots of people who are very, very content, you know, to earn plenty of money, enough money, you know, disgusting amounts of money and not wanting, you know, or desiring, you know, to have ten times as much money as you know you already have got, and you think that's fine. It's just like, what are you going to do with it? Yeah. So you mentioned kids uh, are a leveler as well, you know. Uh, kids keep your feet on the ground. Yeah, uh, well, I've got I've got a, a three year old, so my my sadly my feet don't touch the ground at home. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a, about British Land Canada Water. Yeah. Joint head as of as of a couple of months ago. Yeah. Tell me a bit more about that. Well, I had uh, agreed to uh, retire from Argent at the end of 2015, along with um, Tony Giddings and, and Jim Brower. Uh, and the couple of years before that, uh, I went to a four-day week and then a three-day week. When I was a four-day week, it was terrific because no one really knew and no one said, oh, Rog, could you come and have a look at this or that? Yeah, it was great privilege. and But, you know, I could do stuff like I could you know, get on my bicycle or I could go flying or I could, you know, spend a day with my wife and, you know, go and see family. Uh, Three-day a week's a bit different and somehow it got out that, you know, I might be available and so some people say, oh, do you want to come and look at this? And you go, yeah, that's quite interesting. I'll pop down and have a look. And I'd been having cups of coffee with Chris Grigg from British Land, not because for one nanosecond, as I thought, you know, I'd like to work for British Land. I have cups of coffee with lots of senior people in industries, you know, lots of them are chief execs because that's just the circle I was in, but lots of them are architects, designers, engineers, you know, politicians. You just do that if you are interested in in, in the wider aspects of, of your business. And uh, Chris, Chris's office just said, oh, yeah, about time we had a cup of coffee with Chris. This was you know, summer, early summer 2015. And I, you know, I had no uh, inkling that you know, he was going to say... Have you found your new town when you leave Argent then? Because some of the uh, bids Argent had, had put in over the years, you know, were things like Aldershot, where we really got excited about that. We'd looked at other potential new towns and, you know, they weren't happening for... We involved in Bicester for a bit. We looked at Harlow, we looked at Daventry, but, you know, it wasn't... And the funding of Argent, you know, wasn't there anymore. And uh, Chris just came came out of the blue and he said, I've got a new town for you. And I genuinely thought he'd say, I've got 500 acres in Cambridge or Oxford. And I go, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. 
I'll have a look at the politics because I don't want to bang my head against the wall. And he said, Canada Water. And I probably don't want to run that, Chris. You know, probably don't want to join British Land. But I asked that question, you know, how much land have you got? And he said, 46 acres. Is it freehold? Almost, he said. Lying bugger, but you know, <laughs> can you get a vacant possession? Yeah, that's not a problem, you know, lying bugger. Um, yeah. What's the deal? He said, well, you come and run it, do what you want, employ who you want. So I said, could I put everything in the bin that you've already done? He said, yeah. So I said, oh, well, I'll go and have a look at it, you know. And I went to have a look at it with my wife, sunny uh, sunny summer's day, 2015, you come to Canada Water and I defy anyone to come and spend more than half an hour there and not go wow. And in fact, you won't go wow, you'll go wow and then you'll go wow again and then you go wow again and you go wow again. And that's what my wife and I did. And I went back to Chris and I said, I've got 10 criteria and if you get all the ticks in the box, I'll say yes and if you don't, I'll say no. And we went through the 10 criteria and the last tick went in the box and he was looking over the coffee table and he went, so you're going to say yes then? I went, I suppose I bloody have to now, don't I? So that was it. So, And I joined in actually February the 1st, 2016. Many people listening to this will wonder how you find the drive because you use the, the analogy there of, t- of ticking boxes and in many people's career, chief exec of a, of a listed business delivery of a world-class scheme, credited with with, uh, with leading that development, why didn't you sail off in the sunset? Well, because you walk out the door and everyone forgets you. Uh, and there's new people who are running it. And just to correct you, I wasn't the chief exec of a listed business. I was the director of a listed business. I was the chief exec of, a, of an amazingly funded um, you know, private development business. Slight difference. You know, I, I just wouldn't like to be the chief exec of a of a listed business. You know, I, I don't particularly think if you just want to be a developer, you know, being on the stock market is a good thing. You know, obviously, British Land is not a developer. It's a massive property company of which development is an important part. But a lot of things, you know, we found that at Argent, three years on the stock market, first year and a half, pretty exciting, high profile, you know, could raise extra money. The second year and a half was a it wasn't a nightmare, but you know, just a lot of hassle, a lot of people pushing you in directions you don't particularly want to go, a lot of reporting. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't, I just wouldn't want to do that. You know, I like, you know, assembling teams of amazing people who keep me on my toes, who, you know, call a spade a spade, you know, tell you straight answers to straight questions, and it's just really rewarding. You know, why would you want to stop doing that? During my research, I was told there's a question I have to ask you. And that is, what are Roger Madeline's three rules of life? Uh, not necessarily of life, of business. And I started to explain these to people fairly, fairly early on because I, you know, I, I find them quite useful and people have been kind enough to say they find them quite useful. And number one is in business, this is you know, no surprises, you know, which just means plan, prepare, you know, do all the things that you research, all the things I was telling you about. King's Cross because if you do all that properly you're you're less likely to have nasty surprises um you're going to get some but you know let's let's try and reduce them uh and number two is don't take the piss I also said earlier that almost everything in life certainly everything in business you need teams of people and and those teams of people have got their own agendas they've got their own business criteria to fulfill they've got their own personal agendas and you've got to assemble them and other teams so you don't thwart their their ambitions whether it's personal or, or corporate and they've got to understand that there's all these other teams you know who have their own demands as well and if one team starts to kind of you know, flex their muscles and you know, frustrate the other team's abilities you know they are taking the piss and, and it doesn't work so um, I try and make sure that you know, all the teams of people all the people we've got involved you know do spend time just understanding what everyone else is doing you know and how they're how they're adding value and um, if anyone you know does start to get a little bit um, you know, bullshit or is not doing what they're meant to do the other members of the team don't half you know, realise it and whether they glare at them or whether they, you know, are sat there and they're it, it gets stuff done. 
because you know people don't like being seen to letting team members down so creating that team and then making sure that the team is the motivator of the team itself you know I've, I've found that very very um successful and uh, and the last one I do use you know the the word that I do use far too much but never at home um, and never in front of my mother you know it is fuck it which isn't just you know some kind of bravado statement it's you know set out what the journey is set out what the decision making points are and sometimes you, know, you might have an idea we're going to do we want to do this amazing development but before we decide to press the button and spend lots of money and, and recruit lots of people uh, what we're going to do is we're going to find out about the land and we're going to find out about the planning and uh, and we will uh, we will tell you, you know, when we've found out about that and if it's successful we move to the next step you know, make a decision tell people where the decision making points are keep them involved gather the information and move forward or not you know if you you might reach a decision making point you say we've gathered all the information you know and we're not going to do it but if if people know that that is a decision making point and that decision you know might be we all stop at least they're prepared for it and they don't get you know back to that surprises thing again and i have challenged people over the years to say look you know if you can come up with a fourth you know i'll be very surprised it's probably in one of the first three and I had an old school friend. He said, well, there is there is a fourth one, Rog. And I thought, clever bugger. You know, he's, he is a clever bugger. And he said, you should have a fourth one, and that's sleep on it. And I don't, I don't think it is a fourth one, but I think it's a very good piece of advice because sometimes, you know, we've had annoying news, frustrating news, and in the morning I have always tried to come in and, and worked out how we're going to, not see it necessarily as positive but look that's happened and I've now slept on it and I've kind of thought what the what the reaction is so and you know that in life sometimes just just reflect just sleep on it so I don't think it's a fourth one but you know I had to buy my beer because it was pretty close to the fourth one wasn't it so Roger the people listening to this may well be starting a career partway through possibly eyeing ending their career soon and They'll be listening to this, hoping to learn something from from you and the other other people we're interviewing during the course of it. What lesson do you wish you'd learnt earlier in your career? It sounds very arrogant, um, but I don't think you know. I could say there is one particular lesson that would have made me do things differently. I think you've got to do a lot of listening. You've got to. Be respectful but not blind to you know, what others have done and what others can do. But quite often you know, there are people that have done things that you're trying to do much better and you should always listen to them and learn from them or if you're, if you're not lucky enough to, to meet them, you know, to, to do that research. And I, it, it might have come from the fact that you know, I was on a construction site in charge well in charge of three construction sites at quite an early age yeah and I didn't really know what I was doing but I knew there were lots of people around me who did know what they were doing because they'd been around a long time and I think you've just got to be really honest and you know I had to be honest because when a you know great big you know concrete lorries you know coming or you've got 20 of them you know and you've got a big concrete pour you know you you know I don't know how to make sure that you know, the force works all at the right level and, you know, I didn't know how to order the right concrete and stuff. You know, and I'm, I'm sat there at 24 and I'm a senior contracts manager looking after, you know, three major construction projects and you, you've got to rely on, you know, others. And I don't, I don't think, you know, I was just brilliant at that. I was just thrown into a position where you had to rely on people. So my advice would be realise you're not brilliant at everything by by any stretch of imagination and there are really good people out there and if you listen and admit and you don't have to grovel or anything like that but you know a lot of people are very willing and enjoy if if approached correctly to to help there's a lot of people out there you know are, are willing to help that's that's a beautiful segue into my final question for this evening where do you look for help we all we all reach problems troubles in our in our career and sometimes it's not something we can solve on our own 
my wife, number one. She is um, she is the most grounded and direct person um, who absolutely keeps keeps my feet on the ground and stops me ranting on or you know, thinking I know the answer to everything. Um, colleagues around me, you know, I have been very lucky you know, working with Michael and Peter and then the people that between us, you know, we, we assembled at, at Argent. You know, I've just always said I want to work with stimulating people doing fulfilling things. And I've tried to create an, an environment where, although I might be the boss, I want everyone to talk to me directly if they have a concern. And, you know, that you can just tell me exactly what you think is something that I've always tried to tried to encourage, whether it's someone who makes the sandwiches or makes the tea on the site or is, you know, someone who's 14 on you know, a week's work experience from school or something like that, you know. And there's, there's some real revelatory moments, you know, that, um, you know, happen if you if you can create that environment where people just feel they can they can say what they think and i don't you know i haven't cultured it or anything like that i i haven't learned it it just i needed i needed to listen to a lot of people and i guess you know some advice if people think they're very good at, at stuff you know just pause and do a bit more do a bit more listening and create an environment where people are encouraged to to give you the benefit of what they know even if even if you think they're very unlikely to know anything. They're always going to have a, an opinion which could be very useful and could, could make the next decision you make much better. Well, Roger, thank you very much for your time this evening. I thoroughly enjoyed it and I'm really looking forward to hearing the, uh, the feedback from our, from our listeners when they get to hear us. Thank you very much. An absolute pleasure and uh, the water was delicious, but um, you know, Guinness is my preferred drink. Well, we'll make sure we'll get you back then when we've restocked the fridge. Great. Okay, well, an absolute pleasure. This podcast was brought to you by McDonald & Company, the leading real estate recruiter. To discuss any matters with Nick Carman, please contact him via the email address in your show notes. And don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episode as it's released.